Our scripture reading for the morning is to be found in the 67th Psalm, Psalm 67, which may very well have been on the mind of the author of that song that we have just been singing. Psalm 67, and reading from verse 1 to the end of verse 7, which takes up the whole of that psalm. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. May God be pleased to bless to us this portion of his word this morning. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are indeed a God who blesses his people day by day and hour by hour, that you bless us, our Father, through your faithfulness to your word to us, by your very presence with us, by granting to us that joy of knowing the indwelling Spirit of God, who would be our comforter and our teacher and our great equipper that we might worship you aright, that we might know what it is to walk humbly before you. We thank you, our Father, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We thank you, our Father, that as we gather here this morning, there's not one thing we lack as far as our soul's salvation is concerned, as far as a safe and glorious eternity is concerned. For all that we need to get from here to there is to be found in your Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, Father, we praise you and we bless you for all that you have granted to us and given to us so graciously and so generously. And we pray, our Father, that you would open our eyes that we may behold what we have in Christ, that we might see afresh the riches that are ours in Christ, that we are indeed complete in him, accepted by you in him, and that you are pleased with us because we're found in him. And to our Father, we come to praise you and we come to pray for you 
for you are a sovereign God. Even as the psalmist here declares, you are the God who directs the nations. Father, this, we must confess, is a mystery to us at times. We do not understand your ways in this world at times, for we look out in our own world, even this very hour. Our Father, the dangers, the wars, the heartache, the loss, the bloodshed, the cruelty. And Father, we, we cannot see rhyme nor reason, as it were. But Father, it causes us to confess that our minds are so small. We do not and cannot comprehend the vastness of your own understanding and to our Father the wisdom of your own will. But we take comfort, our Father, in this, that you do guide the nations and you do it with equity that you are God who is not only sovereign, but you're fair, that you judge righteously, that you see always the full story, you see the whole picture, and you do not make one mistake. And so, our Father, we bow before your majesty, we bow before your glory and your greatness, and we come and ask again that you would continue to bless us, that we may be a blessing to the nations, that you would enrich your church, that from it and through it other nations may hear of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Boys and girls and mums and dads would come to that saving knowledge of our Savior. Father, we pray this morning for our sick, we pray for those who are sorrowing. We pray for those that are serving. Equip each as they have need and cause that each may know your blessing upon them, your enabling of them, and your sufficiency for them. So hear our prayers this morning. Forgive us for our sins that we have sinned against you. Forgive us, our Father, both of those sins of omission and commission. Cause us, our Father, to have tenderness of conscience and tenderness of heart as we walk with you, that we will hold short accounts with you, seeking your pardon, seeking your forgiveness, seeking your cleansing, knowing that glorious promise that if we confess, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of that perfect life and that perfect work of your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Lead us now as we come to your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law for our good and for your glory. Amen. No one has the right to hear the gospel twice until everyone has had the opportunity to hear it once. We talk of the second coming when half the world 
has never heard of the first. Such are some of the missionary mottos penned by Dr. Oswald J. Smith. Oswald J. Smith was the founding pastor of the People's Church in Toronto, Canada, a church famous for one thing, its commitment to missions. By his preaching and publications, because he authored some 35 books, Dr. Oswald Smith sought to motivate men and women into missionary service. But you know, one of the greatest missionary mottos and motivations did not come from the works of Dr. Oswald J. Smith, but from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm turning to that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and which we have been looking at now for the last couple of Sundays, to, gospel, to Matthew's record of that prayer, found in his gospel and the sixth chapter. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I trust that you do, come with me again to Matthew chapter 6, and to those words which we considered last Lord's Day. Those words of this prayer... Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Can I put to you, is there any higher motivation for ministry and missions than those words? This premier petition that our Heavenly Father would be perpetually honored and revered by men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and language and nation. That petition surely is the greatest motivation for missions. Because the glory of God is the goal of all our Christian service and endeavor. Hallowed be your name. Will this prayer be answered? Will this petition come to fruition and completion? And if so, how can it be? How will the honoring of God's name be realized? Our answer is found in verse 10 of that sixth chapter and in the petition which follows. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Here in these words is a prayer for worldwide evangelization, for the success of the gospel, for the reign of King Jesus 
in the hearts and over the lives of men and women and boys and girls. In this petition, your kingdom come, we see, first of all, that we're being told here something about the Father's sovereign majesty. He is king, and he has a kingdom. And we see that sovereign majesty displayed in Scripture. Think of the contrast between God and the idol when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai. You see, we are told that after offering sacrifices to the golden calf, the Israelites, and a quote from Exodus 32, verse 6, the Israelites sat down and drank and got up and indulged in revelry. But when God descended down from Mount Sinai, we're told that everyone in the camp trembled. Trembled. What's the message? What's the meaning? What's the application? My friends, it's simply this. You don't tremble before idols. You can see them. You can move them. You can touch them. You can control them. An idol is non-threatening. An idol is safe. But God is not, my friend. Think of the Lord God and his actions in the past. Is God a safe God? Ask Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. These two who decided to worship God the way they wanted to worship God. And so they gave to God what was described as unauthorized fire. And consequently, they were consumed and died before the Lord. It's not up to us how we worship God. Our worship is regulated by what God requires, and he is to be feared. Or ask Uzzah. He was killed for putting his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant. He thought it was about to fall, so he went to steady it. And he was put to death. Why? Is God unjust? No. Uzzah knew the law of God. That that was not within his right or power or profession. He had been told who alone could deal with the ark. God didn't need a hand 
he was in full control. You look at Isaiah, you look at Ezekiel, you look at Daniel, you look at Job, you look at John on the Isle of Patmos, and what do they all have in common? A trembling before God, a reverence before God, a humbling before the face of God, an awareness of God's sovereign majesty, and that awareness shaped their attitude. You see, the prayer begins, our Father, and that gives us confidence to approach him. But don't forget it's our Father in heaven who is king, who has a a kingdom, and that alerts us to the fact of his sovereign majesty, and thus we must come reverently. Our attitude towards God must be one of obedience to his word and being orthodox in our worship, for God is to be feared. His sovereign majesty is displayed in Scripture, and it's also declared in Scripture. We live in a world where we can readily employ the description of the prophet. And that is, we live among a people of unclean lips. We live, do we not, in the midst of great darkness, where we see on our TV screens all forms of depravity and savagery. And so we are sometimes tempted to doubt and despair. Where do we turn for hope? Where do we turn for comfort? Listen to the words of Isaiah 40 and verse 1. The word of God to this prophet. What was his mission? What was his message? Comfort ye. Comfort ye my people says your God. So what comfort did God give by his prophet? He declared his sovereign majesty, especially from verse 12 onwards in that chapter. There are a number of questions that are put and answered. It's a Q&A, actually. The question of verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And the answer is, of course, no one. No one except our creator God. He alone is omnipotent. He alone is omniscient. He alone is independent. God, my friend, does not need your help or mine. He doesn't need us my friends. And then consider the nations. Today's political powers and military might. And then listen to these words of comfort. Verses 15 and 17 of that 40th chapter. Like a drop in a bucket, they're regarded as dust on the scales. 
Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless, less than nothing. My friends, our our worst fears and our greatest enemies do not begin to compare with the might of our sovereign majesty. Isaiah in verse 21 of that 40th chapter asks four questions. It says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the world? Why is the prophet asking the questions? What's he suggesting? What's he saying by these questions? It's simply putting this to the people. Have you not yet grasped the greatness of your God? Have you not seen him in his glory and his majesty? Your God is too small. The God of your mind is too small. The God of Scripture is great and glorious. God has not abandoned the control of the universe. He he constantly directs the cause of events. Listen to the words of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. So what is Jesus saying to us in this prayer that he is teaching here? What is he conveying when he says to us to pray your kingdom come? He's simply praying this. When you pray, pray with your eyes open. Pray with your eyes open to the truth about the majesty of God. It's displayed in Scripture. It's declared in Scripture. When you pray, Behold your God. And yet, in a more definitive sense, this second petition, your kingdom come, points us to the rule of God in redemption as well as his rule in creation. And so we see that that these petitions that we have in this prayer are not merely isolated sayings, but they are related revelations. They're related to one another. And thus, God's name shall be hallowed by his kingdom coming is the powerful ministry of the Father's saving mercy. Through his sovereign majesty, he displays his saving mercy. You see, what what are we doing when we bring this petition to our God in prayer? 
Well, surely we're acknowledging our own great need as sinful men and women who live in a sin-sick world. And so we're praying that the kingdom of darkness will be destroyed. We're praying that the gospel would run with spirit-given power around the world. We're praying that Christ's reign in our hearts will be manifest by his spirit and that our ministry of preaching the gospel will hasten the day of the coming of the king. To put it simply, our prayer is, this petition is, that God's saving rule will spread to and through the nations so that all will know that he alone is God. In employing this petition, in praying this prayer, we're praying that fathers and mothers will be converted. We're praying that those in government will bow their knee to King Jesus. We're praying that children and our grandchildren will run to him. The teenagers will own him as their Lord and Master. That young married couples will build their marriage on him. And that the middle-aged and we who are senior citizens will not lose hope, but will always remember Our God reigns. Now, is such a prayer realistic, given the state of our world today? Well, not only is there the depth of God's saving mercy, there is the dynamic of God's saving might. For what do we read in church history but of times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord? What do we read in the history of the church? That there are times, there are days of revival. True revival has three characteristics. And the first is this. Revival is something that is sovereignly given. Revival is not the result of human manipulation or organization or administration. It is not something that we can work up. It is the result of God's spirit coming down. It's a sovereign work. Secondly, it's a sudden work. When you look at the 18th century awakening or the subsequent outpourings in the United States and the United Kingdom, particularly around the year 1859, prior to that outpouring, prior to that time of revival, spiritually speaking, things were at a very, very low Yet God suddenly came to his people, and in a short period of time, thousands were converted and added to the church. 
Because don't forget, Pentecost saw 3,000 saved in one day by one sermon. That's God's sovereign majesty. That's God's saving mercy. A similar occurrence took place at Cambus Lang in Scotland in 1742. A crowd of some 30,000 people had gathered to hear George Whitfield preaching. And as a result of that message and that ministry, some 2,000 people repented and came to faith in Christ Jesus. And remember, that was before there was any such thing as an altar call or, or, or musicians, as it were, as we have it today. There was just a crowd of people in the open air with the preaching of God's word, and God owned it to changing lives. Revival is sovereignly given. It's a sudden work, and it is therefore a successful work. People are converted. Saints are refreshed. Church membership increases, and missionaries are multiplied. The report from my family's church back in Belfast, Berry Street Presbyterian Church, the report for the year 1859 includes the following. As a result of the spirits working in the life of this congregation, 80 new prayer meetings have begun. 350 new people came to the Lord's table for the first time, and 1,500 new Sunday school scholars were welcomed into the Sunday school classes. Human organization didn't do that, friends. That was the result of the Spirit of God coming at a time of revival even to one congregation. We may well be living in the days of small things, but dear friends, in other places, unusual places, unlikely places, God is at work. He's calling his people and he's building his church. So don't be disheartened. Don't be discouraged. We pray on your kingdom come, because this petition encapsulates the entire sweep of the gospel and the purpose of God in this world. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, our Father's sovereign majesty, his saving mercy, and therefore, in view of his call for us to pray, surely we must give some consideration to his subject's ministry. How does this apply to us? Given that our Heavenly Father is also Lord of all, that he is the High King of Heaven, what, what are we, his, his children, his, his subjects, called upon to do? What, what is the application to us this morning of this, of this petition? What do I want you to take home from this this morning? 
Well, well, surely we, we, we start off by saying, well, we pray it. We bring it into our prayers. And we, we are encouraged to do so in Scripture. What did, what did uh, Jesus say in Matthew 9? Pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest field. That's simply what we're talking about here in your kingdom come. Send forth missionaries. Send them. But let me give you three other things that relate to us. How are we to live in light of this petition? We must live our lives commensurate with his coming. If his kingdom is coming, if we're looking to the king coming back again, we must take heed to how we're living. Second Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. You see, friends, the proof of our conviction regarding the king's coming is not the arguments that we master and muster, but the attributes we manifest. Those that are indicated by Peter, namely, in verse 11, holiness of life, reverence before God, assurance in the faith, patience, watchfulness, and growth in grace. These are the characteristics of the citizens of God's kingdom. To quote Tom Wright, we are praying as Jesus was praying and acting for the redemption of the world, for the radical defeat and uprooting of evil, for God to be all in all, and if we pray this way, we must, of course, be prepared to live this way. We are to live as citizens of God's kingdom, those who are hallowing his name. We are to live commensurate with his coming. But we're also to live, secondly, consistent with his commission, with his commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, records Mark. And Matthew puts it this way. Jesus said, and his gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end shall come. Now, we may not understand it all, but our involvement in the Great Commission, in that missionary mandate, hastens the coming of the King. So how ought we live consistent with his commission? Because we're, we're not all preachers. We're not all teachers. We're not all evangelists. So how, what's our involvement in the ministry of missions and evangelism? 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you, a reason, the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. We're not called upon to buttonhole anybody. We're not called upon to argue with anybody. We're not called upon to confront anybody. But we are called upon to live with hope in our hearts, with the hope of the gospel, and therefore be ready to, to answer your friend or your neighbor or your workmate or your, your grandchild when they ask you, why are you not worried? Why are you not anxious like the rest of us? Why are you not fearful like the rest of us? Why are you different? And you simply tell them of the hope that brings peace to your heart. The peace that passes all understanding. Live as children of God. As subjects of the king. And people will notice. And they will want to know why. They may be deaf to the words of the gospel, but they're not blind to the fruit of the gospel in your life and mine. We're to be a people of hope in order that we may share hope with others. God blesses us that we may be a blessing to others. We live as children of God. And thus thirdly and finally, we're to live committed to his call. And what is his call? Where does Christian commitment show itself? Paul gives it to us, does he not, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Where do we express our commitment to Christ? How do we express our commitment to Christ? By our bodies. By our physical bodies. Because they're not our own. Our body belongs to the Lord, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. And holiness shows itself in how we use our bodies. What we put into our bodies. What we put on our bodies what we do with our bodies, our consecration to Christ, our commitment to his call, beloved, our holiness cannot be hidden. It's not just something inward. How we appear, what we look like, 
is to hallow the name of our God. You may wonder, and I'm only going to be with you for the next few weeks or so, you may wonder why I always turn up with a shirt and tie and jacket. Well, you see, I, I believe in a number of heresies. I know the old saying, and I think it's more an excuse these days, God looks at the heart, he doesn't look on the outside, and that's very true. But listen, it's only part of the truth. If God only looks in the heart and not the outside, why in the world did he go to all the detail of the New Old Testament about the tabernacle and the dress code of the priests? In my new detail. And there's always been the argument in the history of the church that particularly those that serve, there's a distinguishing trait, a distinguishing mark. I throw it out to you for your consideration. We are called to be biblical, thankful, offering joyful service in which we give our whole lives to him, including our bodies. We are told that there was one occasion when Admiral Lord Nelson and the British fleet crushingly defeated the French fleet and they surrendered and the leading French captain was rowed across to Nelson's ship. He climbed up the ladder and approached Nelson, extending his hand and Nelson said to him, Sir, give me your sword and then I will take your hand. And the captain did. And that, my friends, are the terms that King Jesus lays down to any who would be his subject. Lay down your sword and serve me alone. Christ's kingdom comes when men and women and boys and girls finish serving themselves and bow their knees to him. And I wonder if that's your heart this morning. I'm tempted to sing a golden oldie, but I'll save you the, 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 the difficulty of listening to me. But some of you older folk here, you'll, you'll remember. We, we used to sing, it was a, a conglomeration, a conglomeration of, 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 of choruses. We used to call it fruit salad. In Ireland, it was called Irish stew. I found in Scotland, it was called uh, Scotch broth. But you know what? It, it, it had the, these were included in it. By and by, we'll see the king. By and by, we'll see the king. By and by, we'll see, you know what? By and by, we'll see the king and crown him Lord of all. But then there's the kicker. For if we do not crown him Lord of all, and if we do not crown him Lord of all, and if we do not crown him Lord of all, we do not crown him Lord at all. That's total surrender. And praying this prayer Jesus taught us without that attitude, are but words being cast to the wind. So who reigns in your heart? 
today, my friend? What message does your body give out? Self or the Savior? For I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. His kingdom is coming. And it may come at any moment. Be prepared. Be prepared. Well, let's pray together. I'm going to use for my prayer the words of George Matheson's hymn. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer thee. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. Amen.